I have been um, accosted a couple times this morning about the meaning of my sermon title, The Question That Ulcers the Soul. I assure you, it is not announcements. Instead, we turn to Mark, the first chapter, verses 21 to 28. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, he, meaning Jesus, entered the synagogue and taught. They were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as their scribes. Just then, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. They were all amazed, and they kept on asking one another, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame began to spread throughout the, re the surrounding region of Galilee. Here we have encountered a man with an unclean spirit. There are many who debate what that means, this phrase, with an unclean spirit. Some assert that it is a reference to demon possession. By this is meant a non-physical personality that is both unclean and evil, perhaps a rebellious angel, one of Satan's minions, a principality and power. That's a definition that many today scoff at, perhaps unwisely thinking that the ancients were unsophisticated and could not make an informed judgment. Others have thought that unclean spirit refers to the, to the spirit of a wicked dead person. Now this differs from the previous interpretation in that the unclean spirit is of human origin rather than a rebellious angel. Alexander Campbell, an early leader and preacher among the Christian churches, thought demons were the restless spirits of the wicked dead trying to control the living. The third option for unclean spirit has no reference to the demonic, but to a corruption of his spirit by his deeds and attitudes that is so deep as to corrode its very being. His very spirit is unclean. Yet a fourth option may be that the New Testament phrase is ambiguous enough to cover all of the previous ones. Whichever of the options it was or that you think it may be, the spirit was called unclean because the effect of its presence was to separate the man from God and from the worship of God. He had an unclean spirit. Now, the other part of my title that seems to interest people is my use of ulcer. My dictionary defines ulcerate 
as to cause an open sore accompanied by the disintegration of tissue and the formation of pus. Isn't that a pretty picture? Nevertheless, it does raise an important question with regard to the story that we just read. Was that man with an unclean spirit ever more miserable than when he first became possessed of such an evil thing in the first place? Was he ever more miserable than that? And I think the answer is yes. When he was forced to ask the question, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In that moment, he had to face what had become of his own soul. Up to that point, most likely, he had been hiding, even from himself, the extent of his uncleanliness and filth. It is of interest to me that the man was in the synagogue. Was he seeking protective covering, that is, hiding in plain sight? Or perhaps deep down, he recognized that any hope he might have was with the people of God? I don't know which it was, but this I do know. There is no more devastating question a man or woman can ask. Jesus, what have you to do with us? Behind such a question lies the certainty of one's uncleanliness and filth. Unspoken is the personal recognition that one is so foul and undeserving that if anyone, let alone Jesus, knew us, they would have nothing to do with us. It expresses the very fear that possesses those who know the depth of the depravity of their own soul. Have you come to destroy us? The very asking of that question ulcers the soul. The man with the unclean spirit experienced himself as more unclean than ever in the face of that question. You know, it is a terrible thing to believe that God the Holy One wants nothing to do with you. I have known those who have felt thus. Some, like the man Jesus met in the synagogue, haunted churches, tormented by their past and ever seeking forgiveness and a, clean, and a cleanness that would reach to the depths of their souls. They're not unlike the women that Paul spoke of as overwhelmed by their sins and swayed by all kinds of desires and who were always being instructed but could never arrive at the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy 3.6. Simon Wiesenthal, you may remember that name, the Jewish Nazi hunter who had 89 members of his family murdered in Hitler's death camps, spoke of one such man and situation. In 1944, Wiesenthal was a young Polish prisoner of the, of the Nazis. 
And he tells how on one bright sunny morning while his prison detail was cleaning the rubbish out of a hospital for German casualties, a nurse approached him. Are you a Jew? She asked hesitantly and then signaled him to follow her. Apprehensively, he followed her into the hospital until they came to a dark, musty room inhabited by a lone soldier swathed in bandages. White gauze covered his face with openings cut out for eyes and nose and mouth and ears. The nurse disappeared, leaving him with that spectral figure. The wounded soldier was an SS officer, and he had summoned Wiesenthal for a deathbed confession. My name is Carl, said the raspy voice that came from somewhere deep inside the bandages. I must tell you of this horrible deed. Tell you, because you are a Jew. Carl began his story by telling of his upbringing as a Catholic, his childhood faith, which he lost while in the Hitler Youth Corps. Later, he volunteered for the SS and served with distinction and had only recently returned from the Russian front. Three times, as Carl tried to tell his story, Wiesenthal pulled away as if to leave, and each time the officer reached out to grab a hold of his arm with a white, nearly bloodless hand, and he begged him to listen to what he had just experienced in the Ukraine. In the town of, and I'm going to mispronounce that, Dnepropetrovsk, Carl's unit had stumbled into booby traps left by the retreating Russians. In retaliation for the resulting 30 deaths, the SS rounded up 300 Jews, herded them into a three-story house, doused it with gasoline, and fired grenades into it. Carl and his men encircled the house with their guns drawn to shoot anybody who tried to escape. The screams from the house were horrible, he said, reliving the moment. I saw a man with a small child in his arms. His clothes were alight. By his side stood a woman, doubtless the mother of the child. With his free hand, the man covered the child's eyes. Then he jumped into the street. Seconds later, the mother followed. Then from the other windows fell burning bodies. We shot. Oh, God. All this time, Wiesenthal sat in silence, letting the German officer speak. Carl went on to other atrocities, but he kept circling back to the scene of the young body um, with black hair and dark eyes falling from a building that was target practice for the SS rifles. I am here with my guilt, he said. In the last hours of my life, you are with me. I do not know who you are. I know only that you are a Jew, and that is enough. I know that what I have told you is terrible. In the long nights while I have been waiting for death, time and time again, I have longed to talk about it to a Jew, 
and beg from him forgiveness. Only I didn't know whether there were any Jews left. I know what I am asking is almost too much for you, but without your answer, I cannot die in peace. Wiesenthal, an architect in his early 20s, now a prisoner in a shabby uniform marked with the yellow star of David, felt the awesome crushing burden of his race bearing down upon him. He stared out the window at the sunlit courtyard. He looked at the eyeless heap of bandages lying in the bed. He watched a blue bottle fly buzzing the dying man's body, attracted by the smell. At last I made up my mind, Wiesenthal wrote, and without a word I left the room. Now I tell you this morning, this story, because it's a terrible thing to be unclean. Like that officer. That you know that you are unacceptable to God and to everybody else. In addition, in addition, Wiesenthal himself was disturbed by his question. It haunted him all the rest of his life. He wrote the book telling this story near the end of his own life and career to ask rabbis and priests and ethicists, did he do the right thing? Should he have forgiven? What would you have done in his place? That was his question. I'm not going to try and answer Wiesenthal's question for you. Such is not my purpose this morning. I am not sure that it is capable of an answer by me. The Holocaust and all genocidal attempts have depths of anguish that transcend any easy answer. I just remind you that justice, too, is a part of God's character. No, I tell the story because it is so it so clearly illustrates the terrible loneliness, torment, and wretchedness of the person who is unclean, as well as those who are scarred by their actions. One need not be a, an SS officer to feel unclean or to be possessed of an unclean spirit. <clears throat> I have been in the ministry for 48 years, this last Pentecost. The actual anniversary was last Thursday. I was ordained on May the 18th. I have known and counseled child abusers. I have known and counseled those who have been abused sexually and physically. They feel defiled and unclean because of the actions of others. They struggle with forgiveness. I have spoken with those who have purposely taken another's life. I have counseled the adulterer, the satanic ritualist, the thief. In my ministry, I have had occasion to address the alcoholic, the chemically dependent, the gambler. And I have spoken to countless folks whose sins and wrongs seem smaller to us 
but which loomed large in their eyes. And all of them questioned, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? All felt that their filth kept them from God and barred the way so that they could never come to him. And who's to say they are wrong? All that was left to them was, have you come to destroy us? Jesus' answer was an answer of grace. Be silent and come out of him. Jesus addressed the demonic within the man. Interestingly enough, he did not shun the man as too unclean to have contact with God. In scripture, while the uncleanliness, the state of being unclean, is recognized, people were often cast out because they were unclean, those possessed with an evil spirit were more often treated as a victim. In whatever way they may have participated in the acts which resulted in their uncleanliness, and they may have been more victim than perpetrator, they are now powerless in its grip and unable to break its hold, to break the power of the unclean spirit. Help is needed from outside themselves. It's one of the reasons I like our confession time and that time when we turn to one another and say, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Sometimes, and I've known people like this, sometimes you just have to hear the words spoken to you audibly and not just in your mind. The very act of providing that help is an act of grace. It's merciful. It's wondrously amazing. Frequently undeserved, though not always. It's an act of compassion. Jesus said, be silent. Jesus started by quelling the voice which said, God doesn't love me. I'm too unclean. To have his mercy. One of the worst things that we face is our own inner voices that reinforce our unworthiness. Unworthy we may be indeed, but the message of Jesus' very presence is that God loves us anyway. That God so loved the world is the message to shut the lying mouths of the demonic and to answer the deepest fears of the soul. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Have you come to destroy us? Finds its answer in Jesus's be silent. By remembering Jesus' be silent, we find the answer to our condemning voices. But it takes more than just positive thinking. Jesus also said, come out of him. The uncleanliness must be abandoned. The power of the unclean spirit must be broken. This is not always easy. 
When Jesus spoke to the man with the unclean spirit, the man fell to the ground, convulsing and crying out. To break the chains of sin, addictions, or fear is not an overnight process in most cases. Jesus can break instantly what binds us, but for most, a struggle is involved, even some suffering. There is conflict when the Holy Spirit of Jesus challenges and breaks the hold of the unclean spirit that holds us. But with God's help, the chains can be broken. Jesus will accept us as we are. But to be his, we cannot remain as we are. By his power, we are delivered. He gives us the power to become God's children, possessed by a Holy Spirit rather than an unclean one. The Holy Spirit breaks the chains that we can't and gives us the strength to break the ones we can. When we enjoy that glorious freedom that Jesus' grace and forgiveness provides, there is an amazement and a joy. The text tells us that the people in the synagogue were amazed not only at the way that Jesus taught with authority and not as their scribes, but with the effectiveness of his word's power. Even unclean spirits obey. Lives are changed. What is unclean is made clean. In the gracious mercy of God is found not only freedom, but the hope of continued life. John A. Rothy, probably none of you knew him, but my friend Gary, born 1688 to 1758, wrote a great poem enshrining this truth. It's a little long, but hang on. Now I have found the ground wherein Sure, my soul's anchor may remain. The wounds of Jesus for my sin before the world's foundations slain. Whose mercy shall unshaken stay when heaven and earth are fled away. Father, thine everlasting grace, our scanty thought surpasses far. Thy heart still melts with tenderness, thine arms of love still open are returning sinners to receive that mercy they may taste and live. O love, thou bottomless abyss, my sins are swallowed up in thee. Covered is my unrighteousness. No spot of guilt remains in me. While Jesus' blood through earth and skies, mercy free of boundless mercy, cries. By faith, I plunge me in this sea. Here is my hope, my joy, my rest. 
Hither, when hell assails, I flee and look unto my Savior's breast. Away, sad doubt and anxious fear. Mercy is all that's written here. Though waves and storms go o'er my head, though strength and health and friends be gone, though joys be withered all and dead and every comfort be withdrawn, on this my steadfast soul relies. Father, thy mercy never dies. Even on this ground I will remain. Though my heart fail and my flesh decay, this anchor shall my soul sustain when earth's foundations melt away. Mercy's full power I then shall prove, loved with an everlasting love. We always close our services by giving an invitation. If your heart and life has been touched by the grace of God and you need to make things right with him and be washed clean, we invite you to come as we sing this song of invitation and give your life afresh to Jesus or anew if you've never done it before to confess his name, to go into the waters of Christian baptism and to rise cleansed and ready to live for him. Whatever your need may be this morning, we invite you to come as we stand and sing.